0: Welcome to this Business of Music and Poetry podcast, where the life of a creative meets the real world. I'm Michael Amade, host of World Poetry Open Mic, The Michael Amade Show, author of more books than I should mention, musician, poet, and above all, creative entrepreneur. My collaborator and conspirator in this project is Clifford Brooks, founder of the Southern Collective Experience, host of Dante's Old South on NPR, poet and author of The Draw of Broken Eyes and Worldly Metaphysics, Exiles of Eden. And Athena departs the gospel of the man apart. Our guest today is Dr. Samantha Rose Hill. Dr. Hill is currently the Assistant Director for the Hannah Arndt Center for Politics and Humanities and is Visiting Assistant Professor of Politics at Bard College. She's also on the Associate Faculty Brooklyn Institute for Social Research in New York City. She spends her time writing about Hannah Arndt Critical Theory, Frankfurt School Poetics Aesthetic Theory, and the History of Political Thought. Without any further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Samantha Rose Hill. Without any further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Samantha Rose well, Hill.
1: Today, on this business of music and poetry, we have Dr. Samantha Hill, Assistant Director of the Hannah Arendt Center and Visiting Assistant Professor of Politics at Bard College. Samantha, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing well, Cliff. How are you doing?
1: I cannot complain. And to complete this perfect circle. Amade, how are you doing?
0: I am doing extremely well. It's a beautiful day here. Uh, We're supposed to get more snow tomorrow, though, but I'm enjoying it while I can here in Denver, Colorado.
1: Outstanding. Didn't know we were that old to be talking about the weather, but here we are. Samantha, um, you just, before we went on the radio, said that uh, you wanted to have a Ph.D. before you were 30.
2: Oh, goodness. I wouldn't have said it if I knew you were going
1: to repeat it. (laughs) Well, yeah, should have thought that beforehand because the reason I bring that up is that it shows the enormous amount of drive that I've noted in you since we began speaking professionally about uh, six months ago, seven months ago. Um, Growing up, um, what were some of your aspirations? I mean, again, with that kind of drive, what did you want to tackle growing up?
2: Oh, well, that's, you know, that's a wonderful question. I think I... I don't think I ever really thought about it in those terms I think it's uh, just a sense of drive that I've always had a certain passion and I think you know somewhat stereotypically I was the bullied kid and the really shy kid very introverted um, very a lot of social anxiety and I just always found home in reading in books um, and in poetry and reading poems um, and Um, which, you know, we've talked a a little bit about. So I think I just kind of followed that. I followed that sense of home um, through college and into grad school, um, studying and reading what I love. And that's, you know, that's still what I spend my time working on now.
1: Now, with the Hannah Arendt Center, um, I found you after I found her. Um, (laughs) How did you find her?
2: Oh, uh, thank you for that question. Um, and I would I would love to hear more about your first experiences with her. Um, I found her when I was in college, wandering around the library. I was actually looking for Eric Fromm's book, Marx's conception of man, um, and I came across the human condition. And I there was this like nice leather sofa sofa in the reading room, and I, you know, kind of sat down and I opened it and. I was completely seduced by her writing style and I was very aware that I didn't understand anything she was saying and I needed to understand what she was talking about because it felt important to me.
1: Now I mean it is so what about her philosophy once you got your mind around it what lit you up about her?
2: So you know Hannah Arendt's a political thinker um she's sweet generis she is not ideological she lived her life with an incredible uh passion Uh, she had a kind of voraciousness to understand the world around her and she's incredibly open in her thinking i think she you know often what is really remarkable to me about her work is that it, it, it's, it's something that I hold on to in thinking as a way to orient myself toward the world. Um, and, you know, she was a German-Jewish émigré. She really saw the worst that her century had to offer. And I've always been taken by the fact that her question was, how do we love the world? you know she asked this wonderful question why is it so hard to love the world and you know she says that to love the world means uh coming face to face with it is and accepting all of it um with a kind of with a kind of equanimity and that's um that's always i think you said lit me up that's always that's always lit me up and something (laughs) i return to in her thinking her dedication to to the beautiful and to seeing the world as it is.
1: And you taught me something um, not long ago about her, that she was Hannah Arendt was also a poet, correct?
2: Well, you know, so what I like to say is that she, uh, you know, so in her essay, Walter Benjamin, uh, she writes that Walter Benjamin had the great gift of being a poetic thinker without being a poet. And Hannah Arendt likewise had this gift of being a poetic thinker without being a poet, but as, As you know, Cliff, for the past several years now, I've been editing and translating Hannah Arendt's poems. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, There's 74 of them, and uh, she, you know, poetry was poetic thinking was a way of thinking for her. She thought with poets, she thought that poets um, made the language that we live by, that they kept the storehouse of memory, and she thought that poetry was the form closest to the process of thinking itself. And she, you know, when she first started writing in English, um, after she emigrated to the United States, she was, you know, spending a lot of time around the New York poets who were helping her, you know, quote unquote English, as she said, her writing, you know, so she actually in part also learned how to write her prose style, I think, from from poets editing her work, which is a really you
1: know, kind of wonderful gift. I, I again, like I, I saw this and got into this, and and was as terrified when I bought the uh, thinking without banisters. I mean, I I love this. And Sam, I feel so bad because it's like I'm gonna write something about wow, a poet like like play. forever. I go, I've got <laughs> notes now. I've got notes now. Oh,
2: good. Yeah,
1: can read what, it. What uh, <laughs> what drew me. Fervently to action and the in hap- the pursuit of happiness, was the fact that she talks about poetry over and over and over in this chapter.
2: Yes. And
1: and again, just like the, the 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 idea of pursuit of happiness is a poetic one in itself, and that that's you know again it, it's that's exactly the way that I saw this written. In fact, there are passages on how she thinks about uh, philosophy in the way that I think about the way that good poetry is constructed and that it maintains some music with a great deal of rationality. Um
0: mm.
1: Arendt was she 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 believed that to to correct me if i'm wrong i don't want to slaughter this that to be a political theorist or philosopher that you 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 couldn't stand back from it you kind of had to get into it to understand why people do what they do is that
0: close So,
2: so that's um you know so so can i give you the german yin, yes and no
0: Yes so, yes <laughs> Yes
2: <laughs> so she thought she thought that um, judging the world, um, understanding the world required distance. We couldn't mm-hmm. be subsumed within the immediacy of experience. Yeah. And that thinking about the world was something that we do in a space of solitude, in a dialogue with ourselves and what she called a two and one conversation, uh, the conversation that you have with yourself, um, reflecting on your experiences that you have in the world, because all thinking moves from experience. Mm-hmm. So it requires distance, but it also requires being present in the world. So there's a you know, a tension there. She describes the distance and the human condition you know, as this kind of Archimedean point, um, yeah. or in the life of the mind, she talks about the umpire Um, as being, you know, the person who is able to judge from a distance, Um, you know, so coming above the line of time in order to look down on the play, on the action that's happening. But that doesn't mean that we absent ourselves from the world. And I think that's what you're taking out of her, which is so important, and why she turns away from philosophy, in, you know, 1933, um, is that, you know, ideas that are not rooted in the reality of everyday lived experience can't bear upon the real world right, right so we we can't just absent ourselves from from you know you know going on about the everyday business of life or engaging in politics we have to be present in that right. sense as well
1: now you you touched on something I'm gonna flaunt with little and I rant, knowledge that I've seen to gain is you talked about the way that briefly about the, you know, the way you judge a situation and the, the last or you know, what she, what she was working on before she passed away. All she wrote was judgment at the top. She was actually about to talk about judgment, right?
2: Yes. Um, yes. So she, her final work, um, was the life of the mind, three volumes, uh, thinking, willing, judging. And she had finished typing out the first full manuscript of willing the day before she died um, and the first page with the title judging and two epigraphs was found in the register of her typewriter. Yeah.
1: Now this, I've, I've been holding this question. I wasn't going to wait till the end, but I can't wait.
2: Okay. <laughs> what,
1: what do you, not, not in obvious detail, but how do you think that Hannah Arendt was going to approach judgment and how you, how you, how you, how you apply that to society?
2: That's a that's a great question. That's a huge question. So this ah uh, this is a, a very long conversation. <laughs> okay,
1: okay. Briefly, <laughs> yeah. that, that could
2: be done. Yeah. And so I would recommend picking up uh, Hannah Arendt's lectures on Kant uh, that were put together, which were some of the raw material for what was to be the final work on judgment. Um. And you can get a sense of what she's doing there. But judgment for Arendt is very much tied to her conception of thinking and very much present throughout the course of her work. Um, judgment is um, a way that we, um, you know, for her, it does several things. So, one way I think which is really relevant to our contemporary social and political situation right now is a personal responsibility and judgment, and how we hold ourselves accountable for our actions in the world. Uh, so, how do you, um, you know, how, you know, what is that the the question? How am I, you know, what ought I do? Uh, right. You know, and for her, this required um, an expansive imagination, uh, kind of, you know, in Kant's terms, going wandering. Um, being able to imagine the world from the perspective of another Um, and this for her was very much tied to evil and why evil was possible in the world. Um, Unthinking for her um, is sometimes used synonymously with evil and judgment is that ability and thinking that perhaps will uh, prevent us from doing evil. I enjoy- that's a very that's a very cliff note answer.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, I can see your face like I don't want to end here, but I won't stop. I do, and, and so I mean I knew I sprung that one on you, and, and and the reason that it excites me so is I think it does with many people who are politically minded. And for me, it's not so much the topics at hand as it is, and I think it has been this way as long as there's been politics. The what I love about Hannah Arendt is that what she tries to she gives you kind of a a, a handbook on how to rationally discuss political, i.e. passionate uh, topics effectively. You know, the way that she does it with – with uh, now, again, I, I can tell that the poet's soul in her because she does feel deeply about what she writes, or she wouldn't write it at all. Um, but the way that she's able to, to express it in a way that, ideally, if you were able to speak about these terms, that, that that's something that you could follow to just stick to the facts. But as we've all seen throughout history, that talking about politics – is one of the most difficult things to do. Um, what are some tips that you can give us? And I know this is another big one, but what, what, as I can't even look at you as I'm asking this, what are some of the tips that you, that you could give us on, on how to, we'll, we'll take it maybe away from the politics, something so red hot, but give us some tips on how to effectively talk about topics, like how, how to approach something from, as a, from a philosopher's angle, um, to, to approach things that may be a little touchy.
2: Right. So one of the things that we do at the Honna Arendt Center at Bard College is create space for difficult conversations. So I think it's really important to consciously create spaces to talk about difficult issues, social, political, economic, personal, um, and to be able to engage one another in a civil Manner and mm-hmm. to allow for disagreement in a productive way.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: One of the things Arendt says in The Human Condition is that courage is the political virtue par excellence. Yeah. Because it takes courage to mm-hmm. walk into a room or sit down at a table and say what you're really thinking to make an argument. Because when you do that, you put yourself on the line. Somebody can tell you you're wrong. Somebody can call you names. Somebody might agree with you. You might convince somebody to change their mind. But you don't know what's going to happen until you sit down and have that conversation. And so, you know, courage, I think a sense of respect. I think recognizing that not all people have equal measures of courage or ability to engage in difficult conversations and to try and create spaces that allow those people to also have a voice is really important work um you know she says truth and politics have never been on good terms with one another one of the things that
1: <laughs> not at all <laughs> it's
2: not even it's not even funny to say it i, mean, I, did, I, I, I quote that now and people just laugh um, <laughs> but it's, it's dangerous, right? When she talks about truth, she always modifies it. So she talks about historical truth, mathematical truth, scientific truth. And, you know, we need to be able to rely upon certain truths and certain common sense language, right? We need to have a measure of common sense between us in order to have these kinds of conversations. And so, that also requires judgment to go back to your previous question and you know one of the things in my personal opinion it, i you know it seems we're growing poorer in is judgment and the ability to distinguish between fact and fiction or to judge for ourselves how to act morally um in a society that feels like it's full of so much corruption
1: i'm just gonna i'm, I'm gonna sound bite the bejesus out of this show you get this <laughs> I am, I am, and look how smart we are with Samantha doing more talking. Um, it, it, now, now we. Oh, no, you're incredibly
2: pro- totally smart. It's a pleasure to talk to you.
1: I I, I I try now. You're just being nice. Now you can't look at me. So now when I was saying now we when we talk about Bard College, t- tell tell us a little bit about Bard College because I, I am enamored with that school.
2: Yeah, Bard is a special institution. It's really dedicated to um, you know liberal arts education um, and to creating space um, for these kinds of difficult conversations that we've been talking about. You know, I'm incredibly blessed to be surrounded by an incredible community of colleagues who are scholars and writers and poets, um, and to have really curious, genuinely curious students. Um, and we, um, you know, BARD has committed itself to a number of social and political initiatives like the BARD Prison Initiative. There's a current uh, PBS um, show on Netflix you can watch about that, um, and doing work in other countries like Hungary um, and uh, Germany and Kyrgyzstan. Um, we have an incredible international network. Um, you know, so BARD really feels like an intellectual home where. people are given, um, you know, freedom to uh, engage in the kind of work that they want to engage in and pursue the kinds of projects that they want to pursue.
1: Nice. And now, how did y'all start? How did y'all get the Hannah Arendt Center? How did that become part of art?
2: So, Heinrich Blucher, Hannah Arendt's second husband, Um, taught history. He came to Bard in 1952 and he taught history and philosophy. He actually established our first year seminar program and he taught at Bard College until his death. And so he's buried in the faculty cemetery. And when Hannah Arendt died, she was buried next to him as well. And so Bard also has their personal libraries, not the papers, but the books, um, Art never taught at Bard. She did give a guest lecture there. I think 1974, I might be wrong on the year, on power and violence. Um, and so around the centenary of, uh, I think it was in 2002, um, I know there were some conversations between Jerome Cohn, Hannah Arndt's literary executor, and Leon Bodstein, the president of Bard, and Roger Berkowitz, who I believe was then a new professor at Bard. Um, And he founded, uh, Roger founded the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities. Um, And so now we have a number of programs. Uh, I've been there for five years now. We have a number of programs um, that we run um, from a a huge international conference every October to um, a spring series on the courage to be moving from Paul Tillich's book uh he had had been a friend of aaron's when she was alive nice
1: now what classes do you teach there
2: so i have (laughs) you know so i'm a critical theorist by training Mm -hmm. um i teach a lot of classes on political theory contemporary political theory affect theory so the political life of mourning Mm-hmm. Um, I'm teaching a course right now, which is an introduction to the Frankfurt School tradition of critical thinking. Um, I teach classes on the politics of desire, um, and I'll be teaching a seminar on Hannah Arendt in, in the fall. I teach classes like that.
1: Okay. <laughs> oh, just, just a handful, just like that. Um, what, as, what drew you to teaching?
2: So I realized this is my 12th year teaching, which is,
1: which is... Like right now, like in this moment, like, oh my God, I've been here 12 years.
2: <laughs> no, no, I, I realized, I realized it a couple of months ago um, and and realized I probably need a sabbatical. Um, <laughs> I, um, you know, I just, I, I can't honestly say that I ever was drawn to teaching as a vocation. I think some people really are. Um, I love teaching. Because I learn a lot while yeah. I'm doing it. Um, the you know I'm really interested in pedagogy um, and how um, we engage students and text in a classroom. and I, I enjoy teaching very much. I teach in New York City for the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research to anybody who's interested in learning and so, that's very different teaching than Bard College, um, which is an undergraduate institution. The teaching I do in New York is, um, you know, for adults who come from all walks of life. Um, and I really enjoy that kind of teaching as well. That's a different, um, you know, it's a different form of teaching. And it feels, it feels more political to me in certain ways. It feels like a public good and making um, continuing education available to people um in a way that I'm really
1: committed to you know Amade, I'm gonna pass it to you what have you got boss?
0: so um I've been listening to all this so I I think uh <laughs> oh, it, was, it, was oh, it was oh, like a bad you're, qualification you're, you're a champ I'm about man. to come crashing through this no no um so I, no, I, have, I really appreciate a lot about what you're saying yeah. I think the um talking about kind of the the separation of, of a person being the the person living in the day-to-day life the person who's in the constant kind of survival mode in, in a sense and then the separate the umpire the the person who's able to kind of observe and, and pull everything apart I think that's that is obviously such a big thing for for all of us to varying degrees but however I think there's so much of a um, of a schism <laughs> that, that exists for many people where the life they live, compared to the views of the umpire is is such a there's such a conflict there that sometimes they just have to shut off the the observer in their head until it's you know 3 a.m everybody gets this hit of cortisol and we panic and you know whatever um so let me ask you with with all of that and knowing that that's a a a never-ending thing that most of us go through unless we go through some process of really being able to pull it apart where does the concept of beauty Fit in
2: hmm. Hmm. so I think there's two parts, perhaps to to your question there one is the kind of self reflective critical thinking that arent's describing in her work is not you know what we might call monkey mind, right? right it's not the endless onslaught of thoughts that keep us up in the middle of the night um it's closer to what the uh, political thinker Machiavelli <laughs> describes as, you know, going home after a long day of work and taking off his clothes and putting on his, you know, dressing gown and sitting in his study, study and having long conversations with the ancients, um, engaging in a kind of conscious dialogue with yourself about something, and that's, you know, I think. That's hard. That's incredibly hard to do. Um, It's not something that is easy or even, you know, something that feels pleasurable, I think, for a lot of people. Um, So, when she's talking about personal responsibility under dictatorship, she asks the question why, she gives an example, this and she says why don't we murder so and she's thinking about she's thinking about the holocaust she's thinking about national socialism because in germany in that time murder was legal right so Mm -hmm. if the law you know so we don't murder because the law says don't murder or thou shall not murder Mm -hmm. we don't murder because if we did that we would have to live with a murderer For the rest of our lives and our ability to think would be fundamentally compromised. Um, We would be out of sync with ourselves. We would fall out of harmony with ourselves. And so, in that idea, is the argument that we can have that conversation about personal moral responsibility with ourselves, right? To make that judgment. All right, so where does beauty fit in this? I mean, so the political. I would argue that the political thinker who's most influential for Hannah Arendt is Kant. And um, we were talking about judgment, and of course, Kant's critique of judgment, um, his third critique, is about how to make judgments of the beautiful, which very much relates to the sense of inner harmony. Um, you know, one of the, so I, for the past year, I've been intensely writing a biography of Hannah Arendt. And one of the things, that i've been incredibly struck by is her constant return to the beautiful so when she's attending her father's funeral when she's seven you know her mother asks her why she's crying and she says she's not crying because she's sad she's crying because the singing is so beautiful
0: Mm -hmm.
2: when she goes to visit her her mentor the existentialist philosopher carl jaspers for the last time when he's dying um they have this exchange which she recounts in her correspondence with her husband um you know he said life was beautiful and i said no life is beautiful and he said yes you're right life is beautiful Mm -hmm. and so there there are a number of these examples and she had this wonder at the world right I think we could call it Eros Um, this ability to see the beautiful flower to hear the beautiful singing to really love what it means to be alive and to be overcome by this rapturous desire to understand she says several times you know what moves her, what propels her, is the need to understand. She has to understand, and that work of understanding, that work of thinking, like the work of judgment, is never done. It doesn't stop until we cease breathing, she says, you know, so, well.
1: I think that's a great answer. For for me, it's now, what, there's a movie, Um, that Hannah Rent, but it's specific to the Eichmann and the Holocaust, correct? That where she sat in on that, am I right?
2: The Barbara Sakura film, yes, yes. Yes.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about that, please?
2: Um, you know, I don't, I can can talk about the cinematic quality of the film.
1: Um, see, that's that's what no, no, that was the most graceful sidestep I have ever ever let me write that down i can say that it was pretty to look at
2: so I, so, <laughs> I told you not to make me laugh <laughs>
1: that's is, awesome. That is the best part of this show i don't know i was like is that on the microphone what is that so, <laughs> okay all right so what i but so what i what i when i again i've just begun to read her i feel like um Someone asked T.S. Eliot one time, or they, they were discussing Dante, and one of the people at this party said, oh, I've read Dante. And T.S. Eliot said, no, you've only begun to read Dante if it's once. I feel the same thing about Hannah Arendt. And, and so I was, I, was, I was reading about the, the Eichmann and the Holocaust specifically. And then when I watched the movie, it, it seemed like it was more about the dramatics and flair than it was about content. So now that we've got that out of the way and that I'm right, <laughs> um, tell us about the, 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 the impact that the, the Eichmann and the Holocaust had. Um, because it, it did bring her a lot of heat, correct?
2: Yeah, I, I can also tell you about the time she met T.S. Eliot, but maybe we'll... Oh, my
1: God, no, 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 that's today. That um, is today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: So, you know, so she went to Jerusalem to cover the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who had been Hitler's logician, uh, to cover it for the New Yorker magazine and a series of articles. And the publication of Eichmann in Jerusalem as it was appearing in the magazine, and then it appeared in book form in 1963, Really set the New York literary scene on fire. Um, there was a meeting of all, you know, Lionel Abel and Trilling, you know, they called the meeting and chairs were thrown, and she um, was really thrown into the center of a political storm. And there are uh, three common arguments about her work on Eichmann in Jerusalem that she, in Thinking Without a Bannister in some of those interviews, um, really, um, you know, takes apart and says, you know, this is actually what I was saying. So first, she thought that people were responding to a book that had never been written. Um, a lot of the pieces were penned by people who perhaps did or perhaps did not actually read her reportage. Um, The second is that people argue that she was blaming the Jews for um, the Holocaust, which, of course, she wasn't. The bigger problem around that was the tone with which she wrote the book. So she has an incredible sense of irony. Mm -hmm. And she wrote in a very ironic tone. And people like Gershom Sholem argue that that tone is not appropriate to talk about something this horrific. Right. And she refused to apologize for writing in that tone. For her, that t- the ironic tone, of course, creates distance. Right, right. And also allows for laughter, which is, for her, a kind of self-sovereignty. It's very much related to judgment in that sense. The other, the last one is the banality of evil. So, you know, people said, well, you're just saying that everybody could possibly act the way that Eichmann had acted. And she says, no, this is not what I meant at all. The, you know, Eichmann fundamentally lacked the capacity to imagine the world from the perspective of another. Talking to him was like talking to a brick wall. Um, You know, I think we've all had that experience where we're talking with someone and it's not really a back and forth conversation. Um, You know, you say a word and that sets off a kind of automatic response and then you get some rehearsed phrase or cliche or worn out story um you know and so then there's no real exchange there's no real active conscious thinking happening
1: now i want to come back to the person of samantha hill um for pleasure
2: whoever
1: Who, she is yeah she's she's back there i can see her um, what are some of the what what do you do to kind of uh, one of my favorite questions to recharge your philosophical mind what do you do for hobbies to kind of unplug and step away <sighs>
2: You know, I'm with Theodore Adorno. I don't much believe in hobbies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, um, I'm, I, I read a lot. I read a lot of literature and a lot of poetry. I listen to a lot of music. Um, in my secret life, I'm a yoga teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I, um, I. That's that's important to me. That centers me. Um, I. Um, you know, I think I'm, I don't really, I don't really believe in vacations. I don't really believe in kind of stepping out of, you know, my brain. Right. you know, to absent oneself in order to, (laughs) um, in order to, uh, to recharge. You know, the funny thing is I'm, I think often the, the easiest answer is I, l- I like to just kind of go home and not talk to anyone for several days in a row or see anyone. Yes. That's, that's always been my form yes. of rebellion, but now that's mandated. So mm-hmm. I, in order to rebel, I'm being more social than I usually am.
1: Right. <laughs> it, it, it's the, the idea that you just brought up about, like, and I don't believe in vacations, Um I think I hold that to, to a degree that the idea, almost like retirement, that people have this idea that you just shut down and sit down. I can only do that about 20 minutes before oh, I get bored.
2: Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. No,
1: it is, there, there's something to be said. And again, this is kind of a the philosophical question is that um, I think that you enjoy your time and need less escape from reality when you're at peace with yourself. Does that sound good?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure what it means to escape reality.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: I, you know, you just click you just reminded me of a of a quote and I it makes the connection makes sense to me. I'm not sure it's obvious, but you know, Mary Oppen in her memoir uh is talking about her marriage with the poet George Oppen. Mm-hmm. And she's talking about when she knew it was right, and she says we, you know, wanted to create an aesthetic that we could live in. And, you know, so it's not so much absenting oneself from reality, but living a conscious life and creating an aesthetic that we can live in that nourishes us, that that feeds us in our thinking and in our energy.
1: Now, another big one, I'm gonna have to look away to ask this. Now, and, and we, 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 this is not a, we're not a political show because we don't want people sending us hate mail. Um, but what are some tools, from a philosopher's point of view, of how to look at this madness politically that we're looking at now. Because, I mean, I studied history, and it's always been kind of sideways forever. But right now, the whole lot, there's, how can a philosopher look at the debacle we're looking at now, the election that's coming up? And this is is as specific as I'm going to get. What philosophical tools can we do to look at this fake news, real news? How can we kind of think for ourselves while we're inundated with all of these real and unreal facts?
2: So, I think there are a couple of answers to that question. I don't identify politically, so let me just, let me just say that. Um, and I, I, I don't even identify in, in what I do as, as being a philosopher. Um, but I think you know, there are a number of political crises that we are facing in this contemporary moment um the rise of a liberalism, um, the decline of liberal democracy, which I think is what you were just specifically talking about, the um the the rise of fake news, as it's called, mm. um, and the inability to distinguish between what's real and what's not. Mm. Um, I think some other um issues to be attentive to are the loss of privacy. And the mm-hmm. loss of the private realm, and the ways in which social media has come to mediate all of the almost all of the experiences that we have in the world. So we're very much losing our space of solitude. And the other is loneliness. You know, before this current pandemic, there was you know, we've been dealing with an epidemic of loneliness. Mm-hmm. This this country, left or right, has been confronting an existential crisis right um loneliness and unprecedented numbers suicides at unprecedented rates Dr- the drug epidemic right there's a loss of meaning um and people are hungry for meaning and that hunger for meaning that desire to be able to make sense of one's life to feel like one has a place in the world is incredibly dangerous politically because it makes us susceptible to fake news mm-hmm. and ideology, which it, for Oren is one of the things that prevents us from making sound judgments. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, in terms of ways to think about moving forward, be wary of hope and despair, mm-hmm. right? you know, coming face to face with the world as it is rather than as we might want it to be or wish it still was is incredibly important right now and not attaching ourselves politically to any kind of false horizon. Um, I think also having strong communities um, Mm -hmm. and thinking about where you get your meaning from, right? What gives you meaning as a person? And you know, that, that can be religion, That can be literature, that can be your social network, that can be your family, that can be any number of things, Um, you know. But I think it's important right now to attend to those communities and social relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally have been limiting my news consumption. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I think, you know, to protect your own thinking space right now, you know, we live in an era of 24 seven news. And it's, I'm not even sure it's news. There's not much distinction between what we're flooded with and the entertainment industry. Right. And so I think it's really important to not feel like you have to constantly be tuning in and to carve out space in your personal life to slow down, find some space, um, find some space to be present um, find some space to focus on one thing at a time you know and the social this language of social distancing right now is kind of ironic in a way because it, it's felt like we've been social distancing <laughs> right? all of our attachment to these social media platforms is a form of social distancing Um, because we rely on these mediums to facilitate our relationships. And now this, you know, constant movement that we're all caught up in has been ground to a halt. We've been called to attention, (laughs) literally. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and um, it's, I'm trying to view that as an invitation. I think we, this collapse of time and space right now is an invitation um, to think about um, are you know it's distance it's giving us distance and to think about all of these questions at the same time i know this is not a political show um as you said i think this moment is also though um making visible all of the hard work so many americans do every single day um that we i overlook i'll speak for myself that i um get used to overlooking um restaurants coffee shops um you know grocery stores um you know, so I think it's also you know this is a moment to think about our values as a society and what we value and what we attach value to
0: oh
1: sorry go ahead no I, oh.
0: okay so i was um so what i was one of the things I've been thinking about is when you're talking about how um we we are at this moment where our values feel so divided. It's so much to the point where you know it's it's that post truth idea. Truth doesn't matter. It just depends on where you want to view the truth from. Um, now, one of the things that I've I've noticed that a lot of people uh, seem to be buying into and identifying with where they place themselves within their culture, whatever they view their culture as. I am, I am this multi hyphenate thing. This is what I am. This is the group identity I belong to. Yeah. Um. So there's there's one part of that, and I think that as as poets, as as people who's literary people, we we kind of are working against this. But are you familiar with the uh, the term hauntology? It's from Jacques Derrida. Do you, you know what do you know what I'm talking about?
2: Tied to Marx? Is that what you're? Yes, in? yes, yeah. it is
0: tied to Marx. But the, essentially, for people listening, if I can, I want to hear if you think this is total crap or not. Like you can totally shoot it down. but okay. it's just This this concept that um, in the in the absence of the future that we were promised kind of coming true that progress is in, in a sense culturally stopped and all we're seeing now is just um, repetitions of things that have come in the past in new ways so we're kind of haunted by the future that has not
2: yes.
0: uh, not existed um, and i i see elements For of that as
2: as farce
0: right you know, <laughs> look, it's just it's just it's just fascinating to me so i just wanted to throw that out like within this conversation what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's like, is that a thing or is that not a thing? What is your, what is your view?
2: Yeah, so um, to the first part, uh, you know, I think Hannah Arendt is actually really helpful to think with about this question of identity politics, about trying to, um, you know, to, of driving your meaning from that positing of the I am. And she says there's a difference between who we are and what we are, and what we are is very much that I am. and so the the question is how can we how can we have a constitutive you know system, not system, but how can we have a set of political values or social values that are um, not derived from those from those identity modifiers? Right. Mm-hmm. Um and I think you know, there's a lot to say about that. And I think she she's helpful there. Um, the future that we've been promised, Derrida. All right. So my personal motto is embrace despair. Um I <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can't just sneak that in there. Well, you know we're all I think going. I'm gonna make Do a t shirt that? that says that now.
2: <laughs> yes. no, no, no. I have to trademark it first. Okay. okay <laughs> so, all right. But can I? So you know, Hannah Arendt has this question, which I brought up before. uh, You know, why is it so hard to love the world? And one of the things I've been thinking about in this moment is, well, whose world are we loving? You know, at the beginning of the Dialectic of Enlightenment, Adorno and Horkheimer say that the history of progress is the history of of barbarism, and they're they're um, you know taking from Walter Benjamin's thesis on the philosophy of history there. Where he says there's no document of civilization which is not at the same time a document of barbarism. The idea of progress is a philosophical concept that emerged at a certain point in time and promised um, a freer, better society and there are lots of debates ongoing about whether or not it has delivered um, on that promise um, I um, you know, Arendt uh, has this great quote uh, from a 1972 interview she did where, um, you know, somebody asks her what she is. Are you conservative? Are you liberal? Are you socialist? And she's like, no, I'm not any of these things. And I never have been. And I don't think that question's going to get us anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then she adds, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you I wasn't a liberal. And I don't believe in progress. <laughs> <laughs> So, no, I mean, I think we, you know, embrace despair for me as a kind of personal motto has been um, a source of comfort in thinking about this question. You know, the emphasis is on the word embrace, Mm -hmm. um, acknowledging that in a certain way, some things, you know, do improve over time. And in other ways, certain injustices continue within society and some worsen. it's important to um, come face to face with those, um, with the world in that way.
0: Both Cliff and I want to say thank you for spending your time with us. And we want to say thank you to Dr. Samantha Rose Hill for that very deep and meaningful conversation. You can find Dr. Hill at samantharosehill.com You can find Cliff Brooks at cliffbrooks.com Also, southerncollectiveexperience.com You can find me at michaelamaday.com or worldpoetryopenmic.net The music for this episode was provided by the fantastic Justin Johnson. You can find him at Live. Com. The goal of this podcast is to give you ideas and tactics that you can apply to your own creative life. And we go out of our way to try to bring you applicable things that you can apply right away. Until next time, remember to be courageous. Do the hard work. Conquer your obstacles creatively. Learn to trust your heart. For it's easy to lose your path in this business of music and poetry.